Some of you perhaps have had the misfortune of asking me a question about coffee, um, only to discover I really like talking about coffee. Uh, there's a lot to say. I'm not even going to get started, because then we'd have 50 minutes about coffee, and I would be responsible for that before the Lord. Uh, also, I really like disc golf. That's not uh, new information. If you've been paying attention to any illustrations, I can also talk a lot about disc golf. Poor Nash has had to deal with that occasionally. Just ask one question and get 50 answers he didn't even know he wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, on a topic that's, that's interesting, I remember a podcast I listened to a few years ago that the premise, there's Nash, I couldn't figure out where Nash was. There he is, this good brother. Uh, the, the theme of the podcast was that, uh, and the title, Everything's Awesome, so just take mundane topics, concrete, broccoli, cardboard, uh, and if you research anything enough, it becomes interesting. I, I love that idea. Uh, some things you don't have to go very far before they're captivating, and the subjects that we're addressing and really every week from God's Word, but certainly as we kind of zoom out to say what exactly are the pillars of what um, we believe about Christianity in these five solas that you can see on the screen behind me. It doesn't take long before it's fascinating. At its surface, it's, it's fascinating. And there's more uh, that can be consumed, more that could be studied than, than I have the capacity or time to study, certainly not in a week, not even in a lifetime. And of all the things that I have consumed, there's, uh, there's more floating around than I can uh, put down on paper for one particular sermon. Uh, I have more to say today than, than I have time to say it, uh, and more to say than probably you have the attention span to follow. That's not an insult. Uh, we could just spend forever talking about these truths of the gospel, and we, uh, so this is a... This is a snippet of what it is. We're working through the five solas of the Reformation. Latin phrases, sola meaning only or alone. And these five solas, these truths, foundational truths of Christianity were recovered from the darkness and superstition of medieval Roman Catholicism. These five statements are pillars of a return to a biblical gospel, they were vital when first recorded in God's word. They were vital when recovered by the reformers, and they are just as vital today in our lives and in our church. We must have a practice of evaluating our beliefs and practices according to God's word. And so we, we continue this process. It's not just something that was in the past, but something that, that we find ourselves in the stream of to make sure that we have not uh, veered like we talked about with Timothy, there, there, are, there is the path and there's veering from the path. So when we consider these things, it's not just a historical study or just a theological study, but it's a matter of us evaluating our own understanding of the gospel to say, is it biblical? Is it faithful according to these biblical uh, metrics, I guess we could say. The five solas are, as we've talked about, sola scriptura, scripture alone is our ultimate Authority, matters of, of faith and doctrine and practice as Christians. Sola gratia, grace alone is God's motivation for saving us. That took two weeks. Last week, solus Christus, Christ alone is our mediator and savior. As Keith put it, Christ Jesus is enough for salvation, for our life, and for our worship. Today, sola fide, faith alone is the means of our salvation. And Lord willing, next week, soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone is the ultimate purpose for all things. And this week, we're going to walk us through uh, sola fide, faith alone. I had a professor in college who told us at the beginning of each class that the subject he was covering that day was the most important in the whole class. Indeed, that very lecture was the most significant lecture of the whole semester. And he said that every week. <laughs> well, last week, Keith told us that Christ alone was the most important of the five solas, how right he was. And now I want to tell you that this week, faith alone is clearly the most important, not by way of contradiction, but by way of uh, 
admission. They're all the most important. By way of preview, next week, the glory of God alone will probably be the most important. Just throwing that out there as a preview. I introduced some equations to you three weeks ago. Not exactly sure why these came to my mind in the form of equations, but they did. We started off by talking about the fact that God's righteousness plus our sinfulness equals what? Our punishment. Then we saw that our sinfulness plus God's grace, not plus our works, not plus God's grace plus our works, plus God's grace equals our salvation. Last week, Keith helped us to see that there is much more to God's grace than might appear at first glance. God's grace comes to us in Jesus Christ. I love how Paul put it as he was writing to Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Right? It's grace incarnate in the flesh. Grace took on a human nature to live and die for us. So that, that grace and that person and that appearance and that incarnation is Jesus Christ. Grace of God came to us, comes to us in Jesus Christ. You know, on the one hand, we could say we are saved by grace alone. Right? It's like, yeah, of course you could say that. You took two weeks to say that. If by that we mean that God's motivation for saving us is his grace and not our works, then we could say we are saved by grace alone. But on the other hand, we could say that we are not saved by grace alone. If we mean that God is gracious indiscriminately to all humanity and saves everybody, and that's it. It's just, how do people get to heaven? Well, God is gracious, the end. I say, well, that's not accurate, right? That's not the whole gospel. God's grace means sovereign election. Talked about that two weeks ago. That's grace alone, plus a sufficient savior. Christ is enough. That's Christ alone. So as we think about that, our sinfulness plus God's grace equals our salvation. If we dig into grace a little bit, that expands to where we see that what is grace? Grace is God's plan in eternity past, the, the planning of salvation, right? We could say grace, answers, grace alone answers the why question. Why is anyone saved? Anyone saved not because of you doing something, right? You anti-deserve, not deserve salvation. Grace alone answers why is there salvation? Why would God do this? And the answer is Grace. Grace alone is the planning of salvation. So grace is that planning. I will rescue these, my people. And then Christ alone answers sort of a who question. Who who did this? It's the purchasing or accomplishing of salvation. So grace is salvation planned, and grace is also salvation purchased. And then faith alone, maybe we could say, answers the question how. It is the receiving of salvation. So inside of grace, thought about putting this in an equation, the equation just got bigger and bigger. And you had to do like parentheses, moved into algebra. And it just was like, and I couldn't get it to fit on the screen well, just to be honest. So just if you want to just take grace and it's, it's God's, uh, how did I put it? Sovereign election plus a sufficient savior plus trusting acceptance, then close parentheses equals salvation. Let's just skip the rest of the equation. Hopefully you get it. You know, we can't properly discuss salvation, which is a big term. A lot of ways that we can understand aspects of that. We can't properly discuss salvation or receiving salvation by faith without introducing a new term. Um, Terms are helpful. Big terms are helpful. Uh, Big terms are things that we need to interact with and you need to have a clear definition of, especially if it's something that's found in Scripture. And so a larger term, hopefully familiar to you. If not, it needs to be, so... You write stuff down, write this down. You need to know what this word means. I think it appears like 40 sometimes in scripture. Uh, So it's important to God. Uh, We can't talk about salvation without the concept, the word justification or justified. And so we are talking about when we're saying salvation, we're talking about sola fide, faith alone. What we're trying to make the point of is that justification which I'll define, seek to illustrate. Justification is by faith 
alone. Justification sola fide. That's what we're getting to today. Set the stage again. Not going to elaborate this more than is necessary. All the unrighteous deserve and will receive punishment. And punishment is hell. It is God's curse and judgment on sinfulness. All the unrighteous deserve and will receive punishment. All the righteous deserve and will receive reward. To simplify that, that's heaven. That is God's blessing. All the unrighteous deserve and will receive punishment. All the righteous deserve and will receive reward. You are in one of those two categories. You are either unrighteous, deserving and heading toward punishment, or you are righteous, deserving and heading toward reward. Either you are under God's curse or you are under God's blessing. It's an important question to know which of those categories that you are under. Every human being will stand before God as their judge to be evaluated, be scrutinized and declared righteous or unrighteous. If it helps you, you can exchange unrighteous for guilty and you can exchange righteous for innocent. They're not the same thing. There's a lot of overlap, but if it's just like this righteous, unrighteous categories, I'm not really familiar with those terms as well, then feel free to insert the guilty will be punished and the innocent will be rewarded. So the question before you then is, are you guilty before God or are you innocent before God? Let's give some illustrations about this evaluation and uh, declaration of, of what you are, right? The, the evaluation coming true. A parent asks, son uh, or you know, daughter, uh, hopefully James didn't do anything yet, uh, did you break the coffee mug? And when all evidence is considered based on the parent's judgment of the situation and testimony given, right, the child is declared Guilty, yes, this was you, and then punished. Or they are declared innocent, and we go get ice cream. A teacher might ask, student, did you cheat on this test? Did you, you don't normally get 100 plus the bonus points. Did you cheat on this? And based on the teacher's judgment, evaluating the situation, the student is declared Guilty, yes, you did cheat, and then they're flunked or they're suspended, or they're declared innocent and they're placed on the honor roll for doing well, right? The evaluation has taken place. A judge says, defendant, did you, or see, I've watched enough shows, the judge sits here and the defendant's always here. Not sure if that's real in actual courtrooms, but in TV courtrooms, they're always right here. Defendant, did you rob the bank? And then based on the judge's judgment, or juries, depending on how this works. They are declared guilty and sent to prison, or they are declared not guilty. You can insert innocent there. They're declared not guilty, and they're set free. Do you see the pattern here? Right? The one who's in charge, the authority, is evaluating the situation and making a declaration of guilt or not guilt, guilt or innocence, unrighteous guilt or righteous innocence. God his judge, supreme judge over all things, will evaluate every human being and say, human, did you perfectly keep my law? Did you perfectly keep my law? And then based on God's judgment, which is exhaustive omniscience, nothing is hidden from his sight, knows your thoughts from afar off, your words before you speak them. There's nowhere, heaven on earth, east or west, space or sea, where you can hide from his presence and his all-seeing gaze. The one who knows all things will evaluate your life to say, are you righteous or are you unrighteous? And based on God's judgment, we will be declared to be unrighteous and sent to hell or declared righteous and welcomed into heaven. And again, there's more. It's a simplification of those end results, but they're true nonetheless. The Bible gives us a word for God as a supreme judge declaring someone righteous. And that word is to justify or justification. 
So once again, to justify means for God to declare that someone is righteous and we must be righteous in order to escape the punishment of hell and enjoy the reward of heaven. So here's the important question. Who does God justify? That's an easy one, right? Who does God declare or say is righteous? Well, the easiest answer would be those who are righteous would be declared righteous by God. So we ask, is that the answer to our question? Who does God justify? Well, righteous people, those who have kept God's law, living lives of perfect obedience with God honoring motivation. And this makes sense. You know, and it is true that God would justify all those who are truly righteous. There's a problem with this. It's in Psalm 53, quoted in Romans chapter 3 that was brought to our attention today. Paul makes it clear, none is righteous. No, not one. God only justifies righteous people. You are not justified. Therefore, you are unrighteous and you're on the path toward punishment for your sin. Many are deceived and live under the delusion that they are righteous. They say like this, I'm a pretty good person. How many times have we thought that? How many times have we heard that? Oh, I'm a pretty good person. Or a stronger delusion that, that their good works and that their religious efforts can make up for their sin. Nobody's perfect. Well, we talked about that. Not true. God is perfect. <laughs> uh, nobody's perfect. I'm a pretty good person. And, you know, the scales, I'm, I'm probably going to balance it out. It'll, I'll be all right. Well, the, the, the delusional aspect of that is there are two problems with that thinking. First, it underestimates our sin and it overestimates our obedience. I robbed the bank, but I cleaned up afterward. You're far more sinful than you want to admit, so am I. And you're far less obedient. The second problem with that is it assumes um, the damning fallacy that good works can somehow erase sin. I'm not trying to rehash everything that we talked about three weeks ago, but I do want to set aspect of this stage, so I'm going to bake you a cake. I'm going to fill it with flour. Some of you already are not interested. Sugar, butter, a little salt, some vanilla, and just a quarter cup of dog poop. And then I'm going to mix it up real nice. I'm going to bake it to perfection. I'm going to cover it with some icing. Who's going to eat that cake? Nobody. No, you wouldn't. Knew somebody would raise their hand. Some smart little former Peter Ambler would raise their hand. I'd eat, I'd eat the cake. No one would eat the cake. Even that little bit of poop defiles the whole cake. God only, if God only justifies the righteous people, then any amount of sin makes you unrighteous. You are not declared righteous. You will be punished. So who does God justify? If it's not righteous people, maybe it's righteous believers, those who have faith in God and by that faith are made righteous. Okay, we've got to listen carefully about this because on its surface, this sounds right. But this is faith assisted by works. This is faith improved by works. Because this idea includes, the, it says faith, it sounds right, it sounds biblical, but it's not the gospel. Right, yeah, I've got faith and I've got works I bring these things together before God and therefore he declares me righteous because I started off trusting in him and did the things that he told me to do and therefore I am declared righteous because I am righteous and I can prove that to you because look at me. Look at what I've done. See my righteousness and my faith. So I am righteous. Okay, this is the position of, of Judaism in the first century as opposed by Paul. This is what he's, he's running up against in Romans or in Galatians, right? Having begun by the spirit, faith, are you made perfect by the works of the law? 
This is the same position of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century before and then continuing to the present. Actually, they doubled down after the time of the Reformation on the fact that justification is not by faith alone, but by faith improved by works. Sola fide is actually like in Roman Catholic canon law, an anathema, which means that the curse of God and the church rests on those who would say that justification is by faith alone, right? So Roman Catholics say that this is a sermon damning you to hell because we would say it's faith without works. They have never rescinded that. So Roman Catholics and Protestants can get together. It doesn't work because we disagree on a fundamental issue of the gospel, This was opposed by Luther, by Calvin, by the other reformers. We got quotes from this. According to Rome, before God will ever declare a person just or righteous, right? Declaring righteous. Before they would do that, righteousness must actually be in that person. Like God can't look at an unrighteous person and say, you're righteous, and be like, well, of course he couldn't. Well, let's get, we'll, we'll get there. But it must be your righteousness. The problem is you aren't righteous. God's verdict, according to that system, God's verdict on you is still pending. And you have to get to the end of your life to find out, are you guilty? Are you not guilty? Are you justified? Are you not justified? Are you heading for heaven? Are you heading for hell? And every little detail of your life goes through that. At the end of your, if at the end of your life you have maintained righteousness, you will be rewarded. And if you have not, you will be punished. And do you see how, even though this talks about faith at its core, it's really the same as the first option, that God only declares righteous, righteous people. Like faith plus works is the same as works without faith. It's, it's the same thing. And it's, it's contrary to scripture. It's still justification or salvation by works. Works like keeping the Old Testament law or works like receiving the sacraments. So baptism as a sacrament in the Roman Catholic Church is how you are justified. And your sin is washed away, your guilt in Adam, and you are declared righteous simply by the doing of the act in baptism, which is received by infants who aren't even responding in faith. What does the Bible say? Romans 3, 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. How many? None. None are righteous and none will be justified in the sight of God by works of the law. I suppose that God would justify believers whose faith had been improved or assisted by their righteous works if such a person existed, but no such person exists. Since there is none righteous by their works, there's none who have faith improved enough by works that they are righteous of themselves. You may be better behaved than I have been. Sure, some of you are. Not that hard. You may be better behaved than I am, but you're not better than Paul was. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 lists out his, he has a pedigree of righteousness. And his job was righteousness according to the works of the law. And so he builds up this impressive resume of human righteousness according to the law. You've never been close to where he was. He even says, you're not as good as I was. <laughs> like, it's like, well, that sounds arrogant. But like, if you watched him, like, you'd be like, oh, wow, no. Like, I'm not. <laughs> you win. You win the righteousness game. He lists his reasons for why he considered himself righteous on his own. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, do you see the distinction that Paul is making between faith and works? There's none of this faith 
and works. He's saying there is the option of faith, righteousness from God received by faith, or there's what I do. Because it's not like, well, I did a little bit and God did a little bit. God doesn't accept that. And Paul says, Paul piled that whole resume up so that he could take it all and he could throw it in the garbage so that nothing would hinder him from receiving the full righteousness of Jesus. Who does God justify? Righteous people? There are none. Righteous believers? There are none. Who does God justify? God justifies unrighteous believers. This this is the truth of the gospel. God justifies the unrighteous. God declares righteous those who aren't righteous, those who are still sinners. If you're following along with me, this barely makes any sense, right? How could God say that a sinner is not a sinner? Like that that wouldn't be right for him to do. It sounds so crazy. We would need to hear it straight from the mouth of God to accept it as true, right? If only we had God speaking to us from his very mouth to tell us something this Otherwise, just this lunacy. Romans chapter four. You can turn there if you want. You can turn there later. It's not the huge passage. You could read the whole book of Romans. Verse four, Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the unrighteous. God justifies sinners, but he does not justify all sinners. He does not justify all those who are unrighteous, all those who are guilty. So we have another important question. How do you, we're all sinners, not righteous, not even righteous with like improving our faith. We're unrighteous. It doesn't justify all those who are unrighteous. Then how does God justify? This really is the single most important question that a human being can ask and must answer over the course of their life. How can I be right before God? How can I be right before God? See, there is a God, and you're not right with him. You're not born that way. So how can I be right with him? This life is not all there is. There is more. There's more than this, and there's one who made us to whom we answer, and by our sin, we're not right with him. How can I be made right before God? So we ask, how does God justify? By my works without faith? You don't have those works. What about by my works helping my faith? Doesn't make up for your sinfulness. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. How can I be right before God? How does God justify? And the answer is by faith alone, excluding works talking about that declaration, not at the end of your life, but right now, how does God look at you? Has he declared you righteous and look at you as continuing to be perfectly righteous or does he not? That's not a verdict that's just awaiting. That's a verdict that stands right now. And for your verdict to be righteous, it's by faith alone. The Bible 
speaks of these things. Romans 3, verse 28, Romans 3 and 4, Paul is just addressing this same thing. Romans 3, 28, he says, we hold, like we stand on this. This is the truth of scripture. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Clear as day, right? I mean, you can look at any verse around there. I know I'm just grabbing, I know I'm grabbing verses. Feel free, the context makes it clearer than I'm making it not muddier. And there's no twisting. There's no gymnastics of interpretation here. If you doubt that, let's set up a time and I'll just read Romans to you. You are justified by faith apart from works of the law. The passage we've gone to, I think every other time, at least the last three weeks, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Fellow sinner, stained and soaked through with unrighteousness. Did you hear that good news? God will declare you righteous and accept you as righteous and reward you as righteous by your faith alone. Your works, which you know have never been good enough, they don't have to be good enough because it's faith excluding all of your works. Next big question, right? All right, what is faith? An important question to ask because you could define faith and really be defining works. And that's far, far too common. What is faith? In one sense, we could say faith is, is knowing what the gospel says and it's accepting it as true and, and trusting it for your salvation or for your justification. Now, faith isn't just knowing, right? But there's no faith without knowing. Faith in what? Faith in who, right? And that acceptance, like, yes, this, it's like not just like, oh, I know what the Bible says, but like, yes. Like, not just, oh, I can get it on a test, but like, wow. This, this is the most important thing that I've ever heard. Like this embracing the goodness of the good news, right? And being like, yeah, I, I, I'm not, there's no plan B. That's what this ex- trusting it is. Saving faith is receiving the gift of the perfect righteousness of Jesus exchanged for your sinfulness. I try to use the illustration with with the girls, took a little whiteboard, wrote one of their names, or maybe I started off with my name on one side and Jesus's name on the other side and whiteboard and markers. And so on my side, it's like, how much sin do we have? So I got a red marker and under Peter or under one of their names, feel free to put your own name there. Got a whole bunch of red X's. Every red X is a sin. There's not enough ink, not enough whiteboards, right? Could we with ink the ocean fill or the sky parchment made, every stalk on earth a quill, we could not write how sinful I am full of X's, and we draw a line down the middle and put Jesus' name. I get a green marker, and every green check mark, what do you think that equals? Righteousness of Christ. Couldn't talk about that enough. Whole list. Unrighteousness deserves what? I said it 30 minutes ago. Unrighteousness deserves punishment. Righteousness deserves reward, right? So, I've got a whole life of sin. So what do I deserve? Tell me. Punishment. Jesus has a whole life of righteousness. What does Jesus deserve? Reward. Okay, so I should go to hell and Jesus should go to heaven and receive eternal glory. And then the gospel comes in and he switches our names. Like it's really as simple as that. He erased my name and he put his in my spot, and he took my name and he put it on his righteousness. Oversimplified maybe, but, but really that's what happens. So then who gets the punishment? You, know, you all have to say that a lot louder. The answer is Jesus, by the way. Who takes the punishment? Jesus. And who gets the reward? Me, me, what? 
Paul writes of this in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's this great exchange, as some have talked about in the gospel. His works are yours. Your works are his. He took the punishment. You get the reward. He did that willingly, and it's according to the righteousness of God. There's no other sphere in life where that works or where it would ever happen. But that's the gospel. We are unrighteous sinners on our own. But by faith alone, we receive as a gift the righteousness of Jesus, and our sin is removed from our account. This is how God can righteously declare sinners to be righteous on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus. So it's not fictitious. See, you are righteous, it's just not your righteousness. You get Jesus' righteousness if you will receive it as the gift that it is offered. And when you trust in Christ, God no longer looks at your sinful life for his evaluation of you. He looks at Jesus. Looking at Jesus and seeing his righteousness says, he's righteous. She's righteous. You have been righteously justified in Christ. Romans 3, again, a little bit later on from where we had read earlier, says we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or long suffering, he had passed over former sins. So how could David say, why is he blessed for his sins to be forgiven when Jesus hadn't died yet? Because God knew what was going to happen. It was a certain act. And so he declared David righteous when David's sins had never been paid for. And then Jesus took the punishment on the cross. You see, we look back with certainty on the gospel. Abraham looks forward. David looks forward. We look backward and be like, we know we're righteous because Jesus, look at Jesus' life. Look at his death. There is no condemnation left for me because he took it. And we, look with eye, we look backward to his word and to the cross with eyes of faith. So therefore, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. John Calvin defined faith this way. I'm trying to give a lot of definitions about this. Now, we shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Heidelberg Catechism is, is a conversation. We read one of these. I'm going to read a handful of these together. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, have never kept any of them, that I am still as a believer, prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes, that's a transfer, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sin, as if and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ fulfilled for me. If only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Well, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. I'm going to get to that. But because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. And I can receive the same and make it my own in no other way than by faith only. But why cannot our good works be the whole or the part of our righteousness before God? 
because the righteousness which can stand before the judgment seat of God must be perfect throughout and wholly, W-H-O-L, entirely conformable to the divine law, whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled by sin. So you ask, like, are, are my works really ever good enough? No, they're not. Like, it just seems like always just not quite there. Or when I feel like I'm quite there, I'm really proud of myself for being right there. It seems to just poison the whole thing. It does. Like, you aren't righteous enough. You never have been. You aren't now. And you never will be. You need different righteousness, what's been referred to as alien righteousness, not from aliens, but something that is foreign to you. And there's only one source of righteousness, and it is Jesus. Go at it from another angle. Saving faith embraces that God must, has, and will do all that is necessary for me to be saved. Faith fully embraces the fact that God must act in order for me to be forgiven and declared righteous. I am too sinful to do anything on my own or for myself. If he does not graciously initiate salvation, there is no salvation. Do you grasp that? God must act or you are lost. Faith fully embraces that God has acted, right? He must or there's no salvation. Well, the good news is he has acted in order for me to be saved because he sent his dearly loved son, Jesus, to live on our behalf earning righteousness for us and sent him to die on our behalf, taking the punishment that our sins deserve and rising from the dead on our behalf for us and for our justification. As Paul says at a later passage in the Romans, to the Romans, saving faith embraces God must act. God has acted and God will do all that he has promised. Saving faith doesn't just look backward, but it's like, you know what? He, what he said he will do, he will do. He will grant me, has granted me the righteousness of Christ and will accept that in place of my own because I have trusted in his son. Saving faith embraces that God will do what he has promised. All those who receive the gift of Christ alone for their salvation will certainly receive salvation. If you've trusted in Christ the plan that God has revealed in his word, you are forgiven. You are justified. You are adopted into his family. You you have a certain hope of eternal life with him. I have a thousand more things that I want to say, and I should say the end, but I'm not going to. Because there's a common mistake that people make which is failing to distinguish faith from its effects and from its evidences. And this is why we are in need of a reformation in American evangelicalism. The Christian churches that, well, let's make sure that it's, it's here as well. And I want to just look outside our walls. I want to look in here. Faith isn't just something that happens once in the life of a Christian. Really want you to hear that. Faith is not just something that happened one time in the past. Faith is the life of a Christian. You don't believe and then move on to something else. The Christian life is a life of faith from beginning to the end of that life when faith becomes what? Sight. When we receive and enter into the certainty of that. That's why we accurately refer to ourselves as believers. Have you thought about that? Are you a believer? I'm a believer. Like one who believes in an ongoing sense, past, present, and future. And the Roman Catholic Church claims that baptism is the instrument of justification. Like how are you justified? Being baptized. Which would be an act or a work of faith that makes us righteous in ourselves. And the other sacraments either restore our righteousness when we have sinned or, or they build up a store or a treasure chest of merits or good works for us or maybe even for other people. And if that sounds absurd, just learn your Roman Catholic doctrine because I'm pretty sure I'm right on on that. This treasury of merits from the apostles or saints. 
It sometimes is available for purchase, historically, not truthfully. I think we all recognize how this blurs the line between faith and works. But what about this reality? The faith is not the same as its effects or its evidences or its expressions of itself because this is another common way that people blur the line between faith and works and justification. And it's this. Everybody's with me, right? It is a blurring of the lines between faith and works to consider the sinner's prayer as the instrument of justification. Many well-intentioned preachers and evangelists fail to distinguish between faith and expressing your faith. So they answer the question which we find in scripture, what must I do to be saved? With the answer, pray this prayer. No one ever in the history of humanity has ever been saved by praying a prayer. That would be saving yourself by your works. You are not saved by works. If your hope and trust is in a prayer, you are lost. Prayer is an expression of faith. Prayer and an expression of faith is not what saves you. This is so common. You are not saved by praying a prayer. It's not the same. Prayer flows from faith. A river is not the same thing as the spring from which the river flows. Faith is not praying. Faith is not reading your Bible. Faith is not singing gospel songs or obeying or being baptized or taking communion or coming to church or giving an offering. None of those things are what faith is. Those are all things that faith does. And what something is, is different than what it does. So don't look at what it does and say, that's what it is. See, it's the blurring of the line. And it's the same thing that happens in the Roman Catholic Church with the sacraments. Is it good to ask for forgiveness of sins? Yes. Receive assurance of pardon? Yes. Is baptism good? Yes. Right? Misunderstanding about the, the table, certainly. But is it good for us to come to the table? Yes. Are any of those things that which save us? No. I'm not sure when it started. I'm not sure that it has ended, but there just has been a lack of clarity in gospel preaching in American churches. There's a common theme that I've heard among people of my generation who grew up with Christian parents attending church regularly. This is not a slam on my parents, and that's not just because they're probably watching. They pointed me to Christ. I'm thankful for it. But in so many churches. So many of us, not those who grew up in unbelieving households, those who grew up in believing households, being taken to church, learning the Bible, and sitting under preaching, so many of us struggled with assurance of our salvation, constantly asking this question, did I mean it when I prayed to accept Jesus as my Savior? Was my prayer good enough? Did I say the right words Was I sincere enough? Was I sad enough about my sin? Did God accept my prayer? Did I believe enough? Do you hear that those are works questions? Do you you see that that's not looking to Christ? That's looking to me. It's like spiritual ADHD, right? It's like, like, oh, squirrel, squirrel. It's like, oh, works, works. It's like, no, we need to look to Jesus, If we weren't 100% sure, oh, I hate that phrase, 100% sure that our prayer was good enough or sincere enough or heartfelt enough, we were counseled to pray it again and again and again and again and again. I'm not sure how many times I prayed to be saved just to be certain. We can never pray too much. Maybe this time it'll work. Maybe it worked last time. Not sure. I'll just do it again. And the certainty never came. Because you hear what is behind those questions? Me, me, me. Did I mean enough? Did I do enough? Am I good enough? Faith has been turned into a work. That's not, that kind of thinking is not faith in Christ. It's faith in prayer or faith in faith. Faith in faith will not save you. Faith in prayer will not save you. Faith in Christ will save you. 
One author pointed out that so often in American evangelical churches, obsession with the act of faith, because prayer, right? Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. How do you do that? It's verbal. What is verbally talking to God? It's prayer. So it's like, well, you're just totally missing the boat, Peter, because Paul said in Romans, you to pray to receive Christ. Don't say like, you need to better understand what he's talking about, right? Expressing it somehow, that's fine. We should express our faith throughout the entirety of our lives. But again, you're expressing that which already exists, not by walking forward and kneeling down. That's why you have never heard me tell you to walk down and kneel at the front, and you never will. We've replaced, we have this obsession with the act of faith that has replaced the centrality of the object of faith, which is Jesus Christ. This author goes on to say, there is no virtue in believing. The only virtue is Christ. Stop looking to faith and start looking to Christ. Then he makes this point, because looking to faith, looking to Christ, excuse me, that is what faith is. It's, it's looking to Christ. Not it's like, did I receive good? No, just receive. After praying again from uh, again and again and again, ages five to 15, the Holy Spirit mercifully opened up my eyes to see that the question I needed to ask was not, did I believe enough? The question is, do I trust in Christ? Do I trust in Christ alone for my salvation? Not am I enough, but do I believe that Christ is enough for my salvation like Keith pointed us to last week? Boy, I'd love to say for the next 21, 22 years, never doubted that again. I still have that spiritual ADHD, right? Look to Jesus. Yeah, look to Jesus. Like when I, no, 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 no. Look to Jesus, right? Yeah, so am I praying enough? No, no, look to, right? So it's not like I'm this success story, right? confess before, it's still just like, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, keep my gaze on Jesus as my Savior. Weak faith in a strong object is sufficient to save us, and Christ is a strong Savior. Strong faith in anyone or anything else will not save you. So come to our gracious God who has provided a sufficient Savior and receive his gift of justification. According to scripture alone, our salvation is given by grace alone, accomplished by Christ alone, and received by faith alone. And the result of which is that this is all to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. God, I ask again that you would give us eyes to see what the gospel truly is, far more glorious than we could fathom or invent. Give us ears to hear these messages from your word. Increase our, our faith. And thank you that our, our salvation does not rest on the amount of faith, but simply looking to Christ and receiving his righteousness as a gift. Would you please work in those here who, have, who are trusting themselves rather than Jesus, that they would receive from you the gift of his righteousness apart from their works. Amen.